We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a great guest. I've been super excited to talk to him for a while now. He is the youngest ever Swiss Grandmaster, the winner of the 2019 Accentus Young Masters Tournament. 24 years of age, he is rated 25-78 FIDE, which is right near his peak. Winner of 10 Swiss Championship titles in different formats, Classical Rapid Blitz team. But surprisingly, from what I've just said, he recently announced his retirement from professional chess in August of 2021. And I think part of the reason is that he has an amazing blog, nextlevelchess.com. He launched it in March of 2021. It's quickly found a, a global audience. I get it delivered to my inbox every Friday and always look forward to it. He writes insightfully every week on topics like adjusting your mindset for chess, fighting tilt in chess, how he went from international master to grandmaster, how you could find a coach how to learn openings, so much more. So just right in our wheelhouse here at Perpetual Chess, I reread his whole blog in preparation for this interview, even though I'd already read the whole thing as it came out. And it's just so many insights that I'm excited to dig into. 
So without further ado, let's welcome Grandmaster Noel Studer to the show. Noel, how are you? Thank you so much for having me, Ben. I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm excited. As I've told you both online and before we recorded, I'm just a huge fan of your blog. So I'm excited to dig into some of the material and hopefully find you even more readers. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, I hope your listeners uh, will enjoy your discussion and I'm sure we will enjoy yourselves. Yes. And you're joining me from near Bern, Switzerland, you said? Exactly. Yes. I've been uh, growing up here, um, never really in Bern, but always just five, 10 minutes outside um, of the city. And that's where I'm staged now also. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, Noel, we've got a lot of chess improvement talk we're planning. We've got some great Patreon questions. I've got a few follow-ons from stuff I've read in your blog, but I wanted to start with your retirement because I, and I think, and I feel like you found an audience on Twitter in particular, you do a good job engaging uh, with the chess community. And um, I know a lot of people like myself look forward to reading your blog. And you were one of the few sort of um, professionals, I felt like, I mean, obviously, Maxime Vashir Lagrave has a blog. But aside from that, not that many professionals are sort of sharing what they're going through. And the other thing is, obviously, you're an incredibly strong player rated 2578 FIDE. But Maxime's elite, and he's sort of just going through his games, whereas you're sort of going through mindset adjustments and stuff like that. And you were in the rare position that you had a sponsorship deal, despite not being one of the sort of top handful players in the world. So I think a lot of your regular readers found it surprising when you announced that you retired. Now, obviously, you talked about the reasons on your blog, but I think it would be um, useful to hear you kind of reflect on it personally. So how long had you been thinking about this and, and how's retirement treating you? Yeah, it's it's been a big step. Um, I have been th- thinking about it for quite some time. Actually, I've had, um, you know, since 2017 when I had um, my incident with my head and I couldn't uh, focus for um, for quite a bit. Uh, so there was a period where I, I had uh, problems focusing 10 minutes. So if I would talk to somebody at the phone for 10 minutes, I, my head would just basically stop working. So that was uh, quite a bad period for playing chess, obviously. And uh, back then I, I thought of retiring, but basically it was just because I thought, okay, my head might not get back to um, to where I can really play very strong chess. Um, and then throughout the years, um, I still have some, you know, tensions in the back of uh, back area and, and sometimes headaches. Um, and then sometimes when I had, you know, physical problems, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll just, I'll just stop. But it was mostly connected to these physical symptoms. And then um, first time I really started to think more about it was um, towards the end of 2020. Um, and I just felt that during tournaments, I didn't enjoy myself that much anymore, that I had put a lot of, you know, um, pressure on myself just because of turn, uh, tournament results. So I seemed to just care about the tournament, the result in itself and not the process, not, um, how I'm actually doing there, you know, the preparation, the training at home. And I felt there was something strange. And when, Many, many tournaments got cancelled in February to uh, May 2021. I had a long period where I could think, and I was more or less sure I'd retire around end of April 2021. That's basically where I you know, had the decision in my mind, and then just thought, when should I publish that um, officially? 
Okay, so it was already in your mind basically when when you launched the blog? Yeah, it was in a way connected. Um, as you said, there are a few players that share um, you know, their insights and, and their ideas about the game because it gives kind of a advantage to opponents in a way. If you if you say how you think and which mindset you get into a game, if your opponents know that, they they might know more of you than you know of them, right? Right. So um, back in March when I started the blog, I just thought, okay, I might retire. I'm not that sure, but I just want to try something new. And I And I always felt the wish to share things, but I just always thought I can't do it because it will hinder my improvement in chess. So then I was at the point where I just thought, okay, let's just try it. And even if I wouldn't retire, you know, I'd I'd learn something and at some point I could stop it again if if I felt that I needed to focus again more on my own chess. But um, right away from doing it, I just felt, you know, this huge pleasure in in writing and connecting with, with readers. And it was somehow, yeah, something that appealed more to me than sitting for myself, studying and, and going on tournaments. So that was certainly also a point that I understood, okay, there are things that I actually like more. So that helped also in, in taking then this big decision. Yeah. And you're pretty young. You're only 24. And as you've written about in your blog, you made a kind of unusual decision. I mean, it's not super unusual to decide to... um pursue chess uh, at the expense of university, but you were not, I believe, yet a grandmaster at that point. Um, so does it like, and you mentioned in your one of your more recent blogs, you've been sort of reflecting on your career. Do you, I mean, to me, obviously looking from the outside, your university or no, you're quite a quite an impressive young person. But as you look at sort of the whole of devoting six years to being a professional and then retiring so young, are you uh, at peace with the decision? Absolutely. Yeah, I I don't um you know regret anything. I think I I'm pretty proud that I managed to take the decision because I feel it was the right decision for me. Um I do feel that basically every day now. Like there wasn't a day where I thought oh I should be playing. Um so I feel it's the right thing to do. Um I mean for my personal situation. Um but I I you know it would be sad to say uh, these are six years that I have thrown away or whatever. So what I've also written in my article on retirement, that it's like, it, it was, in a way, it was my university. It was six years of studying basically myself, myself yeah. and how to improve myself. And it was extremely valuable. I had, uh, you know, also, as you said, you know, some sponsoring things, some media things. So I've learned so much, not only in chess, that I feel it was a very rich six years and it's time to, do something else and that's perfectly fine yeah uh, that was one thing that struck me in hearing you talk about retiring as you were saying you were sort of feeling the stress of uh competing regularly and the sort of preparation cycle and the ups and downs of uh the sort of a human urge to be very results oriented which obviously is inescapable but it, it struck me as um Notable coming from you because some anyone who reads your blog and everyone listening, if you haven't already, you should devote a day and go read the whole back catalog, um, knows that you're very reflective and you've done a lot of work in this space. But I guess there's doing work or no, it's still just professional chess is a, is a stressful job. And as you mentioned, I'm sure the, the medical issues um, didn't help either. Yeah, sure. And I think also it might sound stupid, but I think I needed that work. Like it, uh, I'm, you know, so ambitious and, and so harsh on myself 
that I tend to get, um, you know, these uh, these stress that I'm stressing myself basically. So I think um, while I manage to, uh, you know, get down to a better level where I don't stress as much and I don't pressure myself as much, I think uh, most articles are basically what I did for myself to to feel better. Um, but I'm always a work in progress. So I think without my struggles, there wouldn't be those articles, right? It's like yeah. if I wouldn't have that stress, I would just say, yeah, just enjoy your life. And I love chess. And, and you know, I don't know, some with some careers I see, they seem so perfect. Um, you know, sometimes you get nearly jealous, but sometimes you think also it's it's hard to help somebody else then. Like if everything is so logical to you, then how can you help somebody that is struggling? And what I felt for myself as kind of something positive out of these struggles is because I struggled as well, because I had a hard time getting, you, you know, the grandmaster title and all those psychological breakdowns and, and um, whatsoever, it's, it's easier to connect to readers that struggle as well. I think that's uh, one big plus. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I, I greatly identify with a lot of <clears throat> what you've written, even if I'm not a 2580 player. We, we all often, especially I think I, we should mention, I mean, I think not, some of your posts aren't even necessarily just about chess, but there is sort of a a tournament angle to them because obviously that's what you've been living for the past, I mean, your whole life, but especially the past six years sort of in the trenches. So um, and again, for, for newer chess fans who are listening, I definitely encourage you all to try a tournament. You may like it, you may not, but um, there's there's nothing that replicates the feelings in uh, online chess that that people fear, feel. And, and we'll have more questions on that for you later, Noel. But um, before we move on to some chess improvement stuff, I did, I mean, I'm sure this is sort of the question of the moment. What's, uh, what's, what's next? I mean, obviously, you're going to continue writing. Do you have some any other uh, plans you can reveal? Yeah, um, actually, just to give us small background, when I started the blog, um, I basically wanted to share my knowledge. And I, I, I read something, um, I think it was Derek Sivers, but I'm not 100% sure, um, that he said that if you leave s some field um, where you're an expert, if you don't share everything you know, you're egoistic. So basically, my idea was I'll just share everything on my blog and then I'm free to move away from chess. So I didn't, you know, start it to think I'll make a business out of it or whatever. Um, but somehow um, through all these, uh, you know, positive comments from readers and, and how the blog has spread, um, I'm now putting basically full time into, into the blog. And I'm starting to work on my first video course, um, which I will um, deliver on my blog. Um, and I just hope to create more and more content for, for people to help improve their chess. And um, yeah, I'll continue writing at least a blog per week. Um, and, and then I'll start um, with some courses and maybe some you know, group lessons. This, this is not very clear yet, but for sure I'll offer courses. And I'm really looking forward to that. Great. And obviously, anyone who subscribed to the email newsletter at Next Level Chess is going to find out whatever you decide to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for okay. plugging and that. Can, <laughs> Noel, can you say anything more about the, the course you're working on or is it uh, too early? Um, it's, um, it's, a, 
it's basically a course on how to study chess. Um, that's my uh, idea. So I want to, you know, there's so much material out there. But what I feel with, um, with the blog or with the contact uh, via mail that I have is most people or we don't really think about how we should study. We should think about what we should study, like give me that book, give me the course, or which course is best, with opening is best. But um, there's fewer thoughts on how exactly do you study. Um, and I want to do a course about, you know, how, how can you, how do you read a book? Like you, you get a chess book and what should you do? Or you get a course, a lesson, an online um, video course. How should you study this one? So I want to uh, go deeper on that and then certainly also, um, see to help you know um, with with training plans as I as I've written about. So it will be a lot of things that are on the blog in a way already, but just much more deep and and hopefully more personal. That that's great to hear. I think that's a great idea. We certainly get a lot of uh, listener questions on that topic for for our guests. Um, something that I you know I try to answer as best I can, but I you know we're all guessing, and I'm I'm certainly no exception in that in that regard. But I know. You, you've got a lot of insights on that. And in fact, when I rereading your blog sort of in sequence as I did in preparation for this interview, it gives you a different perspective than when I'm reading it, you know, once a week, sometimes on my phone, you know, like different circumstances, not sort of uh, holistically. And the, and my thought when I was reading the blog is just like, this could be a book on its own. You could just put this together and it's a, and it's a book. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're going to be sharing more material and, um, uh, you might want to consider just publishing it for people who haven't already read it for free because it's just so many insights. Thank you so much, Ben. Sure. So on that note, Noel, I think we should dig into, we've got, as I said, a bunch of chess improvement questions. Noel's got great insights on stuff like time travel, which regular listeners will know I, I struggle with a lot. So I told Noel online, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to hijack the interview with my own like shrink session, but uh, we've got great questions from listeners and, uh, some stuff I want to dig into, but first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood is a subscription-based instructional website founded by Grandmaster Avtek Gregorian, who you can hear on episode 192 of Perpetual Chess. Founded by Avtek and his team of Grandmasters, there's a huge library of opening, middle game, and end game videos. There's special events like webinars, streams, one-on-one -on -one blitz games. Every Chess Mood member gets a consultation call with one of the uh, Grandmaster coaches. And also be sure to check out Chess Mood's free content. Avtech has a great blog. They also have a YouTube channel where they're posting videos from Grandmasters daily. So links you need are in the show description, but be sure to check out ChessMood.com. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chess.com, up-and-coming chess site, name to watch in the space. Jokes aside, of course, Chess.com has entertaining Twitch streamers, and Puzzle Rush is always fun, even if I'm bad at it. But it also has great uh, educational materials. I, I'm a big fan of the drills to help you convert uh, material advantage against those super strong bots. Obviously, the game reports after every game are indispensable. Even when they're telling you that you played badly, you got to do it and learn from it. And of course, I've advocated in the past for the vision trainer, especially if you're trying to learn the coordinates so that you can read the chess books that we talk about, or if you just want to get faster with it, it's a great way to learn. So I think you know what URL to go to. Just be sure to take advantage of all the tools that chess.com has to offer. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. And we are back. And we've got some great questions for you, Noel, from uh, Friends of the Pod. First one is from the uh, Chess Punks president, uh, founder, Friend of the pod, Neil Bruce. Neil asks, he says, hi, Noel, what are the most common chess training mistakes that you see amateurs make and what corrections do you recommend? So I think that, um, you know, gets to the question also what course I want to offer. I think that this um, thinking about how to study and not what to study is, is one major point. So many people that write me mails, you know, they say, I've been studying this and that, and should I study also this opening and this opening? And they just think about what exactly they should study, but not how effectively to study one thing and then maybe move on. So giving something enough time to really um, reap fruits. Um, So, for example, when getting a coach, in my opinion, you shouldn't expect any results in the first one, two months. You just give him time learn and do what he says and after three to six months you can like reassess was that good for me did i improve something um so sometimes giving the material you use a bit more time and not jumping from one thing to another i think is a very important point um on that same note everybody can get so much advice from everywhere like this grandmaster can say this opening is good and then another one is saying this opening is good right and it's not one is right and the other is wrong it's just two different ways to lead to rome but if you always mix five different things you won't get there so you need to decide for one way for some time and then go go that way and don't you know let friends that tell you but i mean i just bought this french course and it's so amazing or you need to play the dragon or you need to play you know this is, can be so confusing but try to stick to one thing and then see if it works for you and then try out another one i think that's one of the biggest things yeah one of your posts is called uh um quality over quantity right T- touching on that theme um which yeah i mean it has implications both in terms of uh selecting one thing and studying it, but also, as you mentioned, the, the way the way you study it. Um, I had highlighted a quote. Let me see if I can find it on the spot. Um, ah, 30 minutes with full focus are better than three hours with constant interruptions. Yep. Um, and that's, again, that's basically telling to myself, because if you ask my <laughs> girlfriend, like, I'm, you know, I, I'm doing you know, these interruptions all the time. Sometimes um, and I, I will be in the office here and, and I'll start to write an article. And then because of something, I, I just go to toilet for, for a moment and I t- check my phone and half an hour later, I'm still on my phone. Yeah. I'm like, what the heck am I doing, right? Or I'm like six hours in the office, but in the end, I just worked two hours. And in that two hours, I made a great article. In all the other four, I was just wasting time. So... It's basically self-help. Um, my blog is mostly self-help to myself and then what I learned from that for other people. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. You you see amongst the sort of um, you know, uh, re, excuse me, writers and podcasters that I think we have a sort of shared interest in. You you see a lot of suggestions like you know, leave your phone in the other room. You know, turn on do not disturb mode and. Obviously, for for writing that applies, but also for for chess study. Um, and I'm, you know, I've gotten better with that stuff. Shout out again to Neo, thanks to uh, Atomic Habits and uh, just more discipline. But certainly, I have moments of lapsing as recently as uh, yesterday, where I'm like trying to do tactics while my kids are like running around like crazy, and you know, the the TV's on, and it's just like, you know, what what am I even doing? Why am I bothering? No. Yeah, um, it's super hard. Yeah, and Atomic Habits, amazing book, definitely. Yeah, worth a read. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get more book recommendations from you later, both chess and non-chess. Uh, I know you've got plenty. Um, next question is from longtime friend of the pod and supporter of the pod, Peter Newhall. Um, and I can I can feel Peter's pain in this question. Uh, Peter asks, he says, as an adult with many responsibilities, there are frequently periods which can be weeks or months where high quality time to put towards chess is very hard to come by. And I notice that I end up only doing low quality, easy things or don't do much at all until I have more freedom. What do you feel is the minimum amount of high quality work a club player should do in order to maintain their level until their life situation affords more opportunity for playing and studying? Yeah, I think it's a great question, honestly. Um, It's hard for me to tell you an exact number of hours um but i think as you know as few as two hours a week um just staying in touch with your chess i do believe that um this can help at least to um you know keep your level and not just um get extremely rusty um if you have only very few time i would you know generally um try to get in some games and just um, look over your errors. Always very important that whenever you schedule playing games that you also schedule the time to look at them. Um, and, and like this, you just you just keep a bit in the flow of playing chess with your you know, head switched on and not just passively watching some videos or whatever. Um, and it's obviously also very hard to, to find that time that your brain is you know, still working. I can imagine if you have family or if you have a, you know, a day job and you have a tough day and then in the evening at 8 p.m. you still try to play some real good games, it's very tough. So one thing I think that could help um, is getting up actually earlier in the morning, like sleeping earlier, going to bed earlier and getting up a bit earlier. And you start with some chess on one or two days a week um, and then you have done that, you know, your your conscience is feeling better. I did my chest, that's fine. Um, and then you can get get on with, with normal life. That would be uh, one thing I'm, I'm thinking of. Good advice. And in terms of the playing, like Peter's a reasonably strong player. I think he's around um, 2000 USCF. But, and I know you've touched on this on, on your blog. Um, does does blitz count like if he's playing blitz does he need to play rapid like what at what point is playing enough as as opposed to studying i think um i mean it would be nice to have some kind of studying inside not just having the habit of playing but i think it's fine if you have like i don't know if you have two hours you play one and a half hours like when i say playing it usually means also the analyzing part is inside so it might be one hour playing, half an hour analyzing the games, and half an hour um, solving tactics. And I think um, 
as long as it's not only about flagging, it counts as chess. So for me, like three plus zero is the lowest kind of thing I still count as a chess training. I've okay. never done fewer. Um, and as, for example, title Tuesday is, I think, three plus one, um, you, you are close there to some kind of serious tournament where you can really also improve your chess, in my opinion. So I think much m many more people are playing three plus zero. So you don't find too many people playing three plus two, for example. But if you can have some increment, I think it helps not to give your you know brain memory just the flagging. I just move and do something. That's not too great. But um, yeah, there around, I think plates can count, obviously. Okay, good. Yeah, and we should mention, I mean, I do feel like in Noel, you can tell me if you disagree, but I think for lower rated players than Peter, if you're, say, rated below... Uh, 1500 blitz or something i think the the utility goes down um i think it's it's harder to you know you you can't get by on sort of muscle memory as much and i think that uh then you might want to slow down your games a little bit even though we, we we can't deny that the blitz is fun um and that makes me think noel in in reviewing your games in my chess base file obviously and you've written about title tuesday as a practice method i saw a bunch of uh your title tuesday games come up um, even though you're retired from competitive chess, are you still going to be playing Blitz and stuff like that? Um, I might get back into it. Actually, for now, I'm really not doing anything for myself chess-related. I check some some games, you know, when there is some fun tournament, or obviously I have a lot of friends all around the chess world, so I just try to keep up with their results and play the fanboy for now. Um, mm -hmm. I think I might get back, you know, just playing some blitz. Actually, I even had in mind maybe to play once uh, a World and Rapid um, event again, just because it was such a fun and big event. But I think it'll take one or two years until I really get, you know, that wish of missing it so much that I want to get back at the board. Okay. Yeah. And is there any, I had asked when I interviewed Andrew Tang, a few weeks ago, and I haven't caught wind of anything. Is there any news on the uh, FIDE World Rapid and Blitz front that you Actually, heard? somebody told me something about it, but I couldn't find anything online. So either he was trolling me um, <laughs> or or he knows more than is official. So I think it's better not to say anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hopefully it'll come out in due time. And just as a chess fan, as I think I mentioned to Andrew, it's one of my favorite events. So I hope uh, hope FIDE can, can put together an announcement um, soon. Um, so our, our next listener question, Noel, is from Alex Friedman. Um, thanks for the support, Alex. And he, he asks, he says, I especially liked your blog post, Simple, Not Easy, and Best Opening. Um, so maybe we should, if you can, I could summarize them. Um, but uh, after I finish this question, maybe we should give a brief overview. But uh, Alex says, among other things, you warned against unnecessary courses, openings, and YouTube video binges. That's pretty much self-explanatory. Instead of advocating for simple but hard-focused work. Now, Alex asks, would you go so far as to agree with Ben Feingold that, that openings simply don't matter almost at all? So let's try to explain those posts in just a few words. So simple, not easy um, is an idea that there is a difference between those two words. So easy comes from ease, so from doing without effort. And um, I sometimes see, you know, online advertisement of chess courses and so on, that it's easy rating gains or whatever. I think that's just not the case. It, it will always need 
hard focus and and you know it it won't come easy but simple is from simplicity and it comes from not doing 15 things at a time so one um example i give is uh doing every day one push up more is a very simplistic training plan but at some point it won't be easy anymore like doing right. 100 push ups will be really tough so i think that's one way to explain it and um what was the other one was uh, about the best, best opening. opening yeah so um the cor- uh, the the article is about that there is not one single best opening and it depends on your playing style you know your friend might love one opening but that opening might not work for you so there's not one, not one fit all you know everybody should play has to play this opening um and that's sometimes what i criticize of opening courses that you know, sound like you absolutely must learn this opening. If not, you just miss out on whatever. Um, and I feel openings are important to come to the question. So I don't think it's like, it doesn't matter at all. But again, it's very important to study them right. Uh, for example, to get ideas for the middle game already when you study opening. So not only lines, not only remembering lines, but that you get the idea, where are your pieces going? You know, am I playing on the king or queen side in this opening? Or which piece should I exchange? That was one thing Dorfman always said to me. So in this opening, you need to exchange this piece, this piece, this piece. Easiest um, example, French bishop, right? French bishop is horrible. Whenever you can exchange it, basically you can just do it. Like if you can exchange your bishop against a very strong white um, bishop, just do it. And the, the, we should specify the light squared bishop. Light you don't squared. Want <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that's much more important when it comes to openings to know what are your ideas, which structures you are looking for, which um, traits are good for you. If traits at all are good for you, there are some openings where you want to attack um, with as many pieces as possible. So you should avoid traits in general. So having these things will just help you play the middle game much better. And then the opening is important. Yeah. And I think that um, just to add a bit more, a lot, Alex, uh, to address your question depends on your rating. I know uh, Ben Feingold has had a few clips that have gone viral where he talks about sort of like, you know, if, if you, if you play like, you know, 90% 90% of your moves at a you know 2000 level but but 10% of your moves at a 1200 level then you're at 1200 um and like a few more lines like that and i so i think the point he's making is if if you're at a level in your chest where blunders are deciding every single game then openings obviously take um take less prominence or should take less prominence in in your study routine but I think the advice that Noel is giving is great for um, intermediate players, and it's advice that's been echoed by uh, Grandmaster Sergio Ganguly when I interviewed him. As you know, even though he does a course for chessable, which of course helps you memorize openings, that doesn't mean that just because. And obviously, chessable is a sponsor of the show, but just because they help you memorize openings doesn't mean that they're saying per se don't understand it. Um, that's that's not the advice they give. I mean, ideally, you would memorize and understand, and that should certainly be the goal. And I know that our mutual friend, Noel uh, Avtek Gregorian, 
of Chess Mood has also written about this um, with with great advice about sort of the importance of understanding every move. And you you write Noel, and you give some great examples on your blog of like moments where you broke it down to uh, to understand it. And I've been trying to to catch myself because even if you know it's it's easy to skip over a move or two where you're, you know, you generally, you, you, and if you're in the right mindset, you try to understand every move, but then every once in a while, you're just kind of going through lines, like, you know, half awake and you j- just got to try to catch yourself. So um, I, I hope that advice is helpful, Alex. And I don't know if you have anything to add, Noel, before we go on to the next question. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. And also that point, when you talk about Shuria, I really yeah. remember still a lesson I had with him on protest training. Um, and I, I feel like I've been always a guy trying to understand a lot. But he said, so now let's think about why does Black play A6 in Nidorf? And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> I didn't start that early, right? So, so he really took it to an extreme. But it, it just was so interesting to, to hear him, you know, go through the opening moves where everybody just makes them automatically. But he still tries to think, okay, you try to play maybe e5, the knight shouldn't go to b5, right? So you protect this square. And also there is bishop b5 check, so that's why you don't want anything going there. It's like, ah, that's that's kind of smart. So I think it's so important to take some time um, to understand because then also memorization will be so much easier. Even if you forget something at some point, you will think, okay, so the idea of this opening was that I should attack the king. Now he is playing this defensive move. How can I further attack? Like you're not just, I see some amateurs that they go out of their opening theory and they're like, what the hell should I play? Like they yeah. just they just have no clue anymore. And you don't have that if you really try a bit to to get into the position. Great advice, yeah. Um, yeah, and the Nidorf, it's funny because I feel like it's uniquely kind of um, the the A6 idea, like when you explain it and when you think about it, it can make sense. But if you compare it to something like the Sicilian Dragon where you go G6 and it's like, okay, you're fianchettoing the bishop. Whereas A6, it's just like the random rook pawn move if you if you don't understand it. And it's easy, you know, obviously tons of club players mimic um what the elite players are doing. So it's easy to just sort of play the night orf and not even know why you're going a six. So it's a great example from Surya. All right. We've got one more Patreon question. This one is from Igor Feinstein. Um, thank you, Igor, for the support. Um, so Igor says, I- I'm an adult improver and exclusively online player. I also solve a lot of puzzles in the tactical trainer on chess.com. He's approaching 17,000 puzzles since attempted since 2015. So shout out to Igor. That's amazing. Um, I've peaked at just under 2,800 puzzle rating there. However, I seem to have hit a wall now, and I keep going back and forth between 2,600 and mid-2,700s. How do you suggest he busts out of this plateau? Is it usually insufficient calculation or visualization abilities? Or is it a lack of ideas, creativity, and finding candidate moves? What puzzle books would provide an additional benefit to the tactical trainer on chess.com? Are there any specific ones you would recommend? Okay, I mean, first of all, hats off to your, you know, dedication. <laughs> I think you've solved more puzzles than I did in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever done 17,000. That's insane. And I think you you have already sort of some, you know, solutions to your problem. Because I think there is not like, again, there's not one thing I can tell you. Like, it must be imagination. Because I don't know which mistakes you're doing. 
So what was in the question was several thoughts. What could be wrong, right? Could it be the imagination? Could it be missing some move later on? Could it be, you know, I don't know, getting sloppy when you see the first move? So you just make the first move and you might, you know, not see a resource of the opponent. So what I would um, encourage you to do is to to continue doing solving puzzles and write down what could be, you know, the main reason of your mistakes. So again, are you missing simple tactics? Probably not. You did so much. Are you missing opponent's ideas? That might be something. Or are you missing for yourself defensive ideas? So finding maybe one or two themes that are dominant when you make mistakes and then trying to work on those specifically could be something that um, can improve uh, you know, your progress, your rating again. Okay. G- great advice. And as to Igor's question about any book recommendations, do you, do you have any? I mean, I love the woodpecker method. Uh, I just really love that book. I think it's good for many, you know, people different of different strength. And for me, it was still very, very nice to, to go through it. So I think, you know, I can basically recommend it to nearly anybody that is Probably, I don't know, higher than 1,800 FIDE, something like that, um, in order to, you know, be able to solve the, the first few easy ones also easily. And, and Noel, did you do the woodpecker method the way the authors advocate? Did you do the whole space repetition thing, getting it down to like one day or whatever it was? I actually did that, yeah. I, I tried. It was kind of a um, challenge to myself. And I think I've not even managed to do all the puzzles. So basically, I think he says, I don't know, in a span of four weeks, you need to do X amount. And then wherever you get in that span, you need to then do it in two weeks and then one week and and whatever. And I I didn't finish all the puzzles. I think it's over a thousand. Um, So I got like, I don't know, 980 puzzles maybe. And I put them down, down, down. Um, to one session where I try to solve everything. Um, yeah, it's I, I really like the idea. And once you know the idea, I think it's also much more fun to apply it simply to other books. So you yeah. can buy uh, some tactic book that is good for your level. And then you can do the woodpecker method. Um, in Just in that specific case, I don't like too much, you know, that opening repetition. But um, in the in the tactics, it's just amazing because you will just see it much faster at, at the game. It will come automatically once you solved. You know, bishop takes h7 check um, tactical ideas with knight g5 and queen h5 like ten times. It's just if g5 is open and there is no knight on f6, you'll just automatically you'll just take and knight g5 queen h5. It's just. It's just brain memory. You're not even thinking. Like you can wake right. me up any time in the night and give me a position. <laughs> I'm like, okay, just smash that pawn, yeah. Right. So, so I think that that is actually great because you're getting much faster. Also, or especially for fast chess, those things can be super, super important. All right, excellent advice. And um, did you notice? Uh, so you feel like it might have helped with your pattern recognition, but a lot of people like they really want to optimize their study time, Noel. Um, and so Neil Bruce and I did a podcast about uh, the woodpecker method and, you know, we sort of gathered some anecdotes and of course the authors themselves, Axel Smith and Hans Tiekenen and a few friends of theirs had like sort of outlandish results, but everyone wants to know, like, 
does it just automatically improve your rating? So I'm curious what, what effect you felt like it had on your chest strength when you, when you did the woodpecker method properly? Um, I think it's, I would say for quicker time controls, you should avoid more blunders and you should be able to spot um, more tactics. If it's about classical OTB chess, I think there is not as, you know, an immediate rating gain, at least for my level now. Because I'm faster to spot quick tactics, but in um, classical games, it's 99%. I would have spotted them anyway, just a bit, you know, later or... Yeah. So, but it saves me a lot of time. You know, it, it one thing I felt when playing against those 27 plus guys that sometimes I had, you know, I calculated a line for 15 minutes and those, they just, you know, they basically knew that it wasn't going to work. They didn't even really calculate it. And, you know, having solved so many positions, I think you get a feeling of which sacrifice could actually work and which not. So that's something that can help you. But I think it's it's more indirect, at least for, for my level. Um, it, you know, makes some things easier. But um, you don't get around doing some, you know, hard calculation um, if you really want to put your, you know, your your results to a next level. It's not only about, you know, having all these Greek gift ideas or whatever, but really sitting down for 10 minutes and calculating a line until the end where you don't really feel what is the right move maybe or there are two, three critical moves and you calculate that without mistake that's where your game will go uh, one level up. Excellent advice. Yeah, and that reminds me, in one of your posts, you echoed almost verbatim. I recently did a very popular uh, adult improver interview with FM Peter Giannatos where he mentioned uh, that the sort of sweet spot for calculation training is clo- like between five and 10 minutes and that you're getting 60 to 70% of the the puzzles right if you're if you're doing them. And I found it interesting that you gave very similar advice on, on the blog for people working on their calculation. That's actually very interesting. I, I didn't I skipped through that episode, but I didn't get that part, which is very interesting because yeah, I really think it's important that we know what is right from the, you know, how how difficult something has to be. There are people that get pride in reading books that are maybe for someone that is already further ahead. So you can say, you know, I've read Agard's calculation. Right. But if you're below 2300, I'd say it's just very unlikely that you'll take away too much from it because you'll sit there 60 minutes in front of one position and that's not really great. And um, and on the other hand, if you're just skipping through all the time, that's also not where, you know, real progress come from. So it, it needs to be straining, but it needs to be solvable. And... Um, yeah, I remember Grandmaster Harry Krishna telling me that he thinks that anything above 15 minutes is a waste of time or something like that. Sorry, Harry, if I'm quoting you wrong, <laughs> but it's, it was somewhere along those lines where um, he just thinks in a game, if, if you don't solve it in 15 minutes, you won't solve it. So why does it matter if you solve it at home in one hour? You will anyway not solve it during the game. So I think that's also an interesting you know, thought. Yeah. 
And and speaking of fifteen minutes, you you had an insight in in your blog. I think it was in your time travel post where you also said like if you're if you're thinking for fifteen minutes and one of your trainers gave you some useful advice. You know, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you share that too, Noel? Yeah, that was one of the best advice I've ever got for from a coach. It was from uh, GM Marcus Rugger, which was my uh, last coach until I uh, finished my career. So he said when I think for more than fifteen minutes during a classical game. I should just come back and think what is the most logical move. And I should just check that on very easy tactics. And then just, I have to play it. If it's not losing, I just have to play that. Because he says that, you know, after 15 minutes, you usually went through every line already. Um, or every line that you're able to calculate. And then you, you sort of start going back and you see some ghosts and you start to drift. Um, so whatever produces after these 15 minutes is usually actually worse than what you saw already. So you need to get back to your, you know, logical thinking. Okay. What was my intuition? Okay. That's a good move. Let's just do that. And that has saved me many, many points. And you actually follow it because of course it's easy to get advice like that and say, oh, that's brilliant. But then when you're sitting there and like in the fog of war playing a game, you know, it's, it's easy to be like, well, you know, next time I'll, I'll <laughs> 15 minutes, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't perfect, but I can remember two, three instances where I really, you know, I was getting, and we actually, it was specifically for me because we realized that most of my mistakes came when I thought for more than 15 minutes. Right. So it was very interesting. He said every time he watched a game of mine and I started to think for a long time, he thought, oh, no, now a mistake is coming. <laughs> and if I played fast, basically the same difficulty of moves, if I played them fast, I played them well. So it was also really understanding my weakness of, you know, starting to get some really fancy idea after 15 minutes, some really spaced out things that, oh, this could be <laughs> brilliant. You know, I mean, I could play the nicest move in in history of chess and then you play something and your opponent looks at you and just crushes you and you're like what did i do in these 40 right. minutes so i think yeah it's a great advice and obviously if you play rapid or blitz you need to you know shrink this time massively down oh yeah that's a good point i didn't even think that you could apply it like on a condensed level um Cool. Well, that's it for the the Patreon mailbag questions. Um, I've got some more follow-ups from your blog, Noel, but first let's uh, take one more break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by our longtime sponsors, our original sponsors, Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which utilizes space repetition to help you remember openings, tactical patterns, whatever it is that you're working on. They have a huge library of courses, including the free short and sweet versions of various openings. Speaking of openings, they just dropped Lifetime Repertoires, the London System by Grandmaster Lequang Liam. Love or hate the London? You got to know what to do against it. So be sure to take a look for that. And don't forget to sub to the How to Chess podcast hosted by yours truly. We just had Peter Fiddler on, other big guests in the works. So all the links you need are in the show description. Let's get back to talking chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess, of course, collects your games from the major chess sites and then gives you an actionable study plan. So it's a great resource for players and coaches alike. It tells you how you compare it to your rating peers in openings, end games, time management, all that stuff. It told me I was behind on the clock in 87% of my recent Blitz games. I think I might need to work on that. And thanks to AimChess for pointing that out. But it's a great product. Go to AimChess. 
test and check it out. And if you decide to try out a subscription, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. As always, the info you need is also in the show notes. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. So, Noelle, I wanted to pick up a conversation that you and I had on on Twitter a little bit. Um, you've written a blog post about the importance. And actually, this came up in a previous interview with a question from from Peter Newhall, sort of asking uh, for the why in terms of like everyone wants to get better at chess or at least most people listening do. Um, but people have different motivations. And I, I sort of online expressed a uh, somewhat cynical view that. Um, I actually couldn't find the thread. I tried to go back and find it. But uh, but as I recall, what I said was basically like there's an element of sort of uh, ego gratification, especially when you're not a, a grandmaster. And, I, you know, I'm not ab- absolving myself from this group and to the extent that I'm trying to get better at chess. It's the same thing. Um, and, and you said that it made you sad that, <laughs> that I said that. So I was wondering if you could sort of First, out, outline the concept of why it's important to have a why. And then more broadly, I'm curious, what what are valid reasons to sort of push yourself when you know you're not going to be a chess professional? Yeah, so um, I think when talking about why you can't, it's impossible to not say, uh, talk about Simon Sinek, who I think started this discussion. At least he has a book, uh, which is called Start With Why. And um, basically, he, he tries to outline that there is you know, some you should find some deeper um, motivation to why you're doing something. Um, and the easiest way to do so, or n- not easy is a bad word, but the best way to do so is to find something that is not only yourself, so that you're not, you know, in this self-centered mindset of it's about me, 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 but um, that you manage to get outside yourself. So it's... Um, um, you know, about something bigger than yourself. I, I know that will sound uh, way too esoteric for some of your listeners, but uh, I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm kind of into those books. So um, I think, for example, what? how can it help? So um, for me, I've written about that, um, that I um, have been bullied in my childhood. And um, when I started thinking about the why, um, it was one reason that I wanted to excel at something was uh, showing those people that, you know, those those kids that maybe go through a very rough time that you can get from there to somewhere where society, let's say, sees you as successful. Um, and, and that there is, you know, some future, there is some hope. Um, and so one of those whys was inspiring uh, young children. And when I had very rough periods, um, when I was just thinking about myself, I was like, I don't feel well physically. I don't really want to play this tournament anymore. I am so poor. I lost already three in a row. Like, why should I even do that? And, you know, you get into this all negative thought. And then my girlfriend at some point said to me, just think that everything you do, 
there are hundreds of young children behind you and they see what you're doing. And it was like a click in my head. I was like, oh my God, I can't say that I want to inspire them. And then I'm in my hotel room nearly crying around, you know, living my dream as a chess professional, but I'm feeling so bad for myself and I'm so poor and why does this happen for me? So I somehow got a spur of great energy out of that. And and I think that's something that doesn't really happen if it's only about I want to get better, I want to buy a car, I want to, you know, be rich and famous, whatever, yeah? I think um, that can be something that is really deeply aligned in your heart and, and really keeps you going on bad days. I think on good days, when we just beat everybody, we don't need, you know, this this kind of help. We just We just want to play, we want to win, we have fun, everything's good. But on bad days, those kind of things can really, really help you. Great advice. Um, I, I have a couple follow-ups. So first, um, in, in being bullied as a kid, Noel, do you do you think it was related to your being a chess player? I'm just curious. It was certainly related. Yeah, it was. Um, it basically when it started real bad was when I played my first uh, European under twelve championship. So there was already quite some tension, and you know, I was a bit the nerdy, the nerdy guy. But then when I started even. Um, excelling at it i think uh the other kids weren't really happy and and tried to put me down in that way um so yeah there there was some um some connection for sure that's that's really really difficult i mean i don't know you feel obvious i'm you know i'm 44 so i'm kind of out of that you know not even close to that age range you you hear that things have gotten i mean some things are worse like the social media stuff and like instagram and teenage girls and stuff like that. I, you know, you hear it can take quite a toll on mental health, but I, I feel like society for kids has maybe gotten more accepting of uh, eccentric interests. I feel like the, the internet maybe has helped with that because everyone could sort of find their hive, but I'm, um, you know, it's kind of conjecture on my part, but I'm curious, like as a young kid, introvert, as you mentioned, smart kid, um, like what did you do to get through it how did you how did you manage um i wasn't really you know consciously um doing something i think i reflect much more nowadays about these things than when it happened like i was 11 when it started and maybe 15 when it when it stopped uh, or, or maybe it's a long time it was probably even no it probably even started when i was 8 or 9 i think it started earlier it started in fifth grade, so I must have been younger back then. Um, so, yeah, it, it was hard. It was hard. It was, you know, feeling alone. I remember actually that I, you know, I had my three imaginary friends. And that's huh. not, you know, I'm not bullshitting here. <laughs> <laughs> I had three friends that I, I can't remember the names, but I talked to them sometimes because basically I was feeling very alone. And, and that was a way of coping with it. I don't really know if that's the best way, but... Um, that's some anecdote. So I think chess was an escape. Like it was part of the reason, but it was also an escape because whenever I went there, I was more accepted because, you know, I was among equals and I was also, you know, somebody that was pretty good at it. So I was a bit looked up to maybe sometimes. So um, that's certainly helped. I think it's very important to find something in your life um, that you can hold on to. And for some people, it's music. You know, for some people, it's dancing. For some people, it's any sport. Um, whatever that, you know, you can 
just let the things go a bit and and be yourself and just enjoy that that particular moment. Yeah, that's great advice. And Noella, I mean, I love what you said earlier about like having kids follow you and like that being a, a driver. And obviously, you're one of the top players in your country. You've won um, national titles, so that's definitely true for you. But I think the sort of um, internal monologue that uh, adult improvers might struggle with is that there's really not anyone following them, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's a very, I mean, you can try to find community and people with shared goals, but it's ultimately um, about yourself, the the journey of trying to get better at chess. So uh, how, how do you sort of um, frame that in terms of uh, needing a, a bigger reason to, to pursue uh, self-improvement or chess improvement? I think it's it's a great point because it's not as easy as if you you know you have maybe some some platform where you can showcase whatever you wanna you wanna bring to people. But um, I think at least you know what you can do is seeing something for yourself that is goes beyond the result. So let's say you wanna improve, um, you know, staying focused, or you wanna you know. Um, use your brain so you have less likelihood of Alzheimer or, um, you know, something that is already not only did I win or did I lose? Mm -hmm. Winning is good, losing is bad. So um, I think that's one point. Another point is, you know, many adult improvers, you know, you have kids, you have maybe a spouse, you have a family, you have um, friends that you can in some way influence. So I got one mail from a reader, which was super funny. He is, I think, 85 year old and his grandson started playing chess and he said he wanted to learn chess now. And he asked me for advice and he reads my blog to show kids that also an 85 year old can learn something new and can excel at it and can beat this young kid. And in a way, it's, you know, it's it's competitive, but in a way, it's also, you know, giving something to that grandson, like giving you know, even if you're 85, you can improve at something. It's not like life is over at 85. So, and I think many 85-year-old might hear such a story and sound, wow, that's that's amazing. That's so cool. You know, he's so active still. You know, he he tries to get into new things. So, yeah, I think it must be personal. But whatever can be a thing that maybe you can, you know, show that you can improve yourself still, or you can push yourself. And you can show that to somebody and maybe that one person, you know, takes it up and, and maybe doesn't even do it in chess. You know, he takes up, I don't know, whatever hobby or just, you know, do, does one hour of sport every day to keep fit or um, whatever it might be. Having something that is connected to somebody else is even an easier way to get a bit away from, you know, I lost, it's bad um, or I won, it's good. I think that's for me, that's the main point. That's great advice. Yeah, it resonates with me because I'm I'm playing and obviously that's hard because rating is the measuring stick, but I can certainly think of, uh, you know, other other ways to frame it and, you know, other other goals that are that are beyond rating. Um, Now, another point I highlighted from your blog, Noel, one of my favorite posts of yours was how to analyze your own game. Um, and I just played a tournament and unfortunately I read it after the tournament because you have an, uh, what I find to be something I hadn't seen suggested anywhere else, um, in terms of like 
doing like sort of two passes at uh, analyzing the game. But um, before before we discuss why you um, espouse this, could you could you share sort of the general approach you advocate in terms of what to do with your tournament games during a tournament and then after a tournament? Yeah, so um, here we're talking about OTB, um, classical uh, yeah. games. And there. we should talk about how to adapt it for online when we're done. Just for, Exactly, for I think that's that's a great point. But for OTB games, I tried to play the game. And the first thing I did was going to the room. I didn't always do that, just completely honest. Sometimes I just went to the room and checked the engine. I mean, we are all human. But what I tried to do was writing down, you know, main calculations or main ideas I had during the game that should take, you know, only 10, 15 minutes. Really just where were the key points? Where do I think, for example, I lost the game, right? Where do I think um, the game went away? Like, what would I do differently now that I just know I lost? Right. And and um, one specific point is also where was I out of the opening? Where did I start to play chess on my own? And then, like three, four main decisions. What what did I think? And and very important, get emotions inside. You know, sometimes I was just scared. I just said, Knight C six looked very scary to me after my move, and and I just stopped calculating it. And don't be ashamed because I did that so many times. So that's so important to get to, to the reasoning of why you did the wrong move. Or maybe you did the right move, but you did it for all the wrong reasons. And that's very dangerous. So that's my first step. And then as long as the tournament is still going on, I don't really want to get deeper inside. Um, I try not to switch on the engine. It gets much harder when you play on live games. And if you go to any major website, you just have the engine immediately. Yeah. It was really tough. Um, but I think especially if you don't have that live game, you can really do that. You can put in your game, just try to not switch on the engine and write down the things. And then you get back home and then you work on the game, but also on what you said. And if you really want to take yourself time, you can go through everything once more. Um, you can, you know, recalculate for yourself. But I understand that we all have, you know, not unlimited amount of times. So, um, what you might do, you get home and then you check the most important moments. And you basically only, or what I did was 90% of the work I did was on what I wrote down. So if there was somewhere a big mistake, but I didn't think it was important at all, well, that was also like, oh, that's something scary, right? I didn't write down anything and it was like double question mark move. So that might be something. But if there is somewhere, you know, I could have played a better move, but I still played a decent move. And I didn't really think a lot. It was just, you know, 15 seconds reflective. I'm not really, that's not the mistake I want to correct too much. What I want to correct is these important decisions. Did I feel where it was important? Or did I completely miss where the game went wrong? Um, and the second thing, what was my reasoning? And, and what can I improve in that? Um, so yeah. I even try to think, did I play the wrong move for the right reason or for the wrong reason? Did I play the right move for the right reason for the wrong reason? Because the thinking behind is what makes you play the next 100 games, good or bad. If you hit once the jackpot, yeah, nice, but it won't help you. And I've recently you know, started to, to play a bit of poker. 
and I think it's a great, um, you know, great way to think about that even further. So let's say you go all in and you have 10-9 and the guy has aces. So probably you're, you're you know, with 10-9 in most cases, probably not the smartest thing to go all in. But you might hit two tens and in your brain it's like, I won, I did the right thing. Well, that's very dangerous because next time if you call in with 10-9, it won't hit anymore, you know? It's not all the time working. And in chess, it's, you know, not the point of luck, but sometimes it just works out that your wrong reasoning finds to the right move, but it won't do that the next time. So it's super important to, you know, be alert to, I might have had good results, but actually my thinking was quite off in many steps. And usually if you can understand this or the other side, I lost, but actually a lot of my decisions, you know, were very sensible. And and then, you know, the results will come. Don't worry. It's That's really the process. So I think um, that's that's my way of analyzing games. Yeah, I found it to be amazing advice. Um, I had just played, as I mentioned, just played a tournament this weekend. And even, and actually I had already had a somewhat similar approach. Maybe it was like subconsciously from having read your, your post back when it was first published. But I do try to do the brain dump after each game. But in this case, I did it on Monday. The tournament was over the weekend. And I already could feel the difference in terms of like not remembering many of the feelings. And I was just like, oh man, Noel's right. And it's hard, as you say, because like, Games can be an emotional roller coaster. Like I had one five and a half hour game where I was winning for five hours and 20 minutes of it and then lost, you know, and it's like the last thing you want to do in that situation when you're trying to recover for the next round is like, okay, let me go write down my whole stream of consciousness, you know. Um, But as you say, it only takes 10 to 15 minutes. And already when I sat down on Monday, I was like, oh, I wish I had written it earlier because I had some of the insights that I had at the time, but some of them were were already forgotten. Now, Noel, as we mentioned before, of course, we have a lot of online players. Um, so how can this be adapted? I, I feel like it's challenging because online is just, it's just, it just doesn't dig as deep, I feel like, but maybe that's just sort of my personal bias. What do you think? No, I think it doesn't make sense, you know, to spend so much time on one single game if it wasn't a classical game. Um, and I have an article actually on on Blitz games, and what I do there is really just, you know, seeing where are the huge swings. Um, and you can do that immediately with the engine. Uh, that is fine. Um, so what I do for playing Blitz online, for example, I, I always um, set in advance how many games I will play. So I said, I'll play six games of 3 plus 0. I'll play those six games. And after the six games, I'll analyze all those um, six games. Like this, I don't get into tilt. Actually, that's a point of my article on tilt. Um, and like this, you can also plan to have really the time to analyze your games. You're not like playing the game until you have to run for the train. That's what I did also many times. Right. And then you will never analyze those games anymore. And it's like lost, you know, lost time in a way. At least hopefully you enjoyed yourself, but you probably didn't learn too much. So... In case of Blitz, I would really set set an amount of games you play, and when you finish those games, you get through the games and you look at what um, you know. What was the first thing in the opening that I didn't know? Uh, you might you know expand your opening knowledge, or maybe you're playing you know a wrong move all the time, 
like you have some analysis and you actually want to play another move, but because you played it already 10 times in a Blitz game, it will come so automatically that you're sure that it's your theory. So that's very important to check it shortly. Is that really what I wanted to do? Um, and then to check just what is, you know, the huge swings, like where, if you lose the game, where did I lose the game? And I never came back. So it's like, it's zero, 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 zero. And at some point it's minus five. And that's obviously a huge mistake. Like what happened in that, in that jump? Um, and, and like this, you just get your most important mistakes. As you said, there's not so much depth into the game. So you don't care about that would have been slightly better positionally. Well, you did it with two seconds. So right. I don't really think that's something you can learn. Of. But just getting those blunders or um, maybe you understand. I think in the article I talk about that I m- several times, you know, I missed some um, opponent's resources. Just always, you know, some move that just came out of the blue for me and I was completely busted after it. So that's something that you can realize and then you start to to improve on this. Okay, great. Yeah, great advice. So it doesn't have to be as deep a dive, but still uh, worth reviewing and extracting lessons. Yeah, and in that case, I guess you can feel less guilty about using the computer like yeah. right away. I think that's completely fine. And if you play maybe longer rapid games, you can try to do something in between. Maybe you just write down two or three very important decisions where you took, let's say, five minutes. Because this you can, there is some depth in it if you took five minutes. So write down why you did that move before checking it with the engine. Um, And then you can go through the same way and just check the, the big mistakes and what is the critical moments did they work out well or not so noel thank you for the for those insights there's so much i could ask you from your blog but uh but i want to go a little more big picture now one thing you've written about and you mentioned earlier you work with legendary trainer joseph dorfman who of course has been the second to the to kasparov and a trainer of uh, grandmaster atn back row you've worked with uh, arthur yusupov who of course is a world-class player and often collaborator of legendary trainer mark davoretsky and you mentioned your most recent coach, uh, GM Marcus Rager. Um, I'm just curious, like, what what are the biggest lessons you've gotten from from working with all of these uh, amazing trainers? And of course, your sports psychologist as well, which a lot of us don't probably should work with, even as uh, weekend warriors, but but don't. Yeah, I mean, I've really been blessed by having all those uh, amazing coaches. Uh, maybe it's smartest, you know, go from the start. So. I remember actually my first coach was uh, a non-title player called Marcel Giger. And I have one article about him and he, he told me, you know, talk with your pieces in yeah. order to understand if they're happy. Um, and that's one thing I actually, that stuck with me uh, until today. Um, then from Arthur, I learned a lot. I also learned a lot as a person because he is just such an imp- enjoyable person to to be with you know he he just i think at that time i was also not that motivated i was not working too much on my own for chess and he just has that love for the game just you know let's just enjoy it let's choke let's you know um improve and there's not one thing i can you know point out from him but i would just say that that general joy for from playing chess has come a lot also from arthur you know, just having that, also that feeling of knowing, okay, 
you know, it doesn't make sense to push him too much at the moment. He he won't study anyway. So, you know, let's just do our lessons and, and let's try to give him some spurs of motivation and and um how he ha- handled the lessons that was that was really amazing um then from yosef the biggest takeaway was um you don't need to be the biggest talent to work like a world champion that's basically from day one what he did he said to me is like you know you're not where Bakro and kasparov were at your age um it's quite improbable that you'll ever be a world champion but what I can do with you is I can train you like a world champion. We can, you know, put the efforts in that those people did. And then we just see where it goes. And he was the first one to really instill that kind of thought inside me that there was more than just getting a GM title for a Swiss player. Um, and that thinking big and, you know, just... Just work hard and you can get somewhere. You can you can really do something. And I'm still very grateful for to him because he was really the first that really told me this you can do more and I think you underevaluate your, your chances internationally. You oh, you can a, get somewhere. And, it's an interesting mix, sorry, of yeah. uh of sort of um harsh truth but also encouragement. It's like both at the same time. Yep. I think, and and with some people, you know, Yosef is a special character. Um, with some people, it just doesn't work at all. And we had a very, very good relation for some time. And then in the end, it also didn't work out anymore personally. But uh, for some time, we really had a very close relation. And, and that was what helped me. Like, just, man, you're not the greatest ever. So <laughs> just work hard and you might get somewhere, right? You, you can get somewhere. You're not a total idiot. But uh, you you shouldn't just lie around on your bed because nothing won't happen. And yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you hear stories like that, like uh, you know, this has sort of been passed down. So I I don't know like how accurate it is, but allegedly, like when Dvoretsky worked with Josh Waitskin, who was a top American talent, who of course has gone on to uh, write the art of learning and uh, do some amazing things outside of chess. But you know, it's been said that like maybe Waitskin bristled at the notion that like he wasn't as talented or wasn't like singularly talented as compared to the other young, um, young people that, that Dvoretsky was working with regularly. Um, so was there an element of sort of, uh, it, it bothering you when, when he told you like, you're not going to be world champion or was that something you kind of already felt like you knew? Actually for me back then, really, I, it was a time where I thought 2600 was basically impossible. So somebody telling me I'm not going to be world champion, I was like, well, I knew that already, man. Okay. So it's <laughs> not a problem, you know? So you really have to picture that um, in Switzerland, there there was never a big thinking um, or in, in terms of chess, you know? Many people really said, you, you can never make a living. You know, already GM is impossible or that's, you know, really the top of anybody, any Swiss player's range. And um, so I'm coming from that and to somebody that says, you know, um, you might not be the, you know, the most talented player or, you know, also the most, how should, how can I say? He, I wasn't trained that well as all these other people, right? So I wasn't at a point where other people were. But he just said, I take you as you are and I think you have some potential and I'll train you like I would train, 
you know, if I was given the best junior at your age, that was something for me nearly honorable. You know, he is investing time in me, even if he had, you know, many young, very strong students. Um, he is taking me and he believes in me. And that was something pushing for me in general. That's pretty cool. And then you mentioned a sort of falling out. I don't, are you, are you able to say anything more about it? I'm just curious because it sounds so fruitful at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, you know, uh, say anything too personal or whatever, but um, I, I think he, we at some point had different expectations or uh, he, he might have believed that I was getting stronger faster. And also one problem was, you know, that my health issues obviously slowed down everything. And um, so at some point it just didn't fit anymore together. I, I felt that he was, you know, further ahead in my career than I was. And sometimes, you know, also with all the mental things I worked on, for him it seemed very clear. And and maybe for him that, you know, you know, stress, pressure, never was anything that really got to him and it got to me. And um, so the, we weren't at the same point anymore and it was smarter to just, you know, part ways. But uh, I mean, at least from my side, there is no bad blood at all. And uh, I mean, um, we've also talked uh, when we met at the Olympiad when, when I was playing and he was coaching. So um, there is, you know, nothing, um, nothing very bad going on, but just sometimes, you know, you're not at the same stage anymore and it's it's time to, to part ways. That, that was basically what happened. And would you be interested in doing any sort of team training at something like the Olympiad long term? Um, I mean, training is something that I've always, you know, enjoyed. I started actually with, I don't know, 14 or 15 when I gave the junior classes in my club because I was stronger than all my coaches. So I <laughs> was getting the coach. Um, but as I wrote also in an article, you know, you need, in my opinion, I just want to invest so much energy into my students um, that I would like it to be the only thing or nearly the only thing or the priority at least when I do it. Uh, so for the moment, I'm just saying no to everything, but I can imagine you know, working with some talents or with some teams at some point in the future. Okay, cool. And and one more thing, again, hearing you talk about your work with, with Dorfman reminded me of your writing about um the work you did when you did decide to go professional. You wrote about how sort of like when you were 18, you decided not to go to university, and that's the first time you you really worked on chess. Just for for listeners who might be curious, could you describe what what the day was like when you spent those years where you're like, all right, I'm just giving it everything I have to put into chess? So the first training plans were completely out of mind. They started at 8 in the morning and finished at 10 p.m. in the evening. So I was basically wow. reading um, Kasparov's predecessors. Um, from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. because I felt like I had to put every single minute inside. Now you probably get also why I write an article of quality over quantity and I say that it's like self-help because I was the most quantity-driven guy probably out there. Um, in the later years, it was more of um, working six hours, uh, four to six hours a day, five times a week. I think six hours is, if you really do it focused, it's like, for me, at least, it was the maximum I was able to really focus on chess. So it would be maybe 10 to 1 and 2 to 5 chess work. And then there was some management inside, um, either in the evenings or whenever I had a bit of time on the weekends. 
and generally try to do one hour of sport every day. Usually that was in the morning, just not to be lazy in the evening and not do it uh, at all. Um, and meditation was also part of my routine. So Yeah, what you mentioned was a struggle at first. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it is it is very tough like for, b- before i was professional i wasn't that motivated or that driven i was you know sometimes doing some chess but then somehow i got that you know feeling i can go somewhere and i want to put so much inside um and i didn't have too many people that were telling me of their experience or you know connections in switzerland or whatever so i just basically tried to f- figure out things by myself and um, that's also part why I'm trying to share things because I think, okay, first years, I did some good things, but so many mistakes that one could avoid if just somebody tells you like, man, it's not working like that. Just don't even try to study 12 hours a day or eight, 10 hours a day. Like, it won't work. Um, I think that's that's some things that I took away from from that time. Cool. And just a uh, a handful of more questions, if you're okay on time, Noel. You good? I'm very good. I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> Excellent. Me, me too. Thank you. Um, so you've got so many book recommendations. Actually, most of them, and I think not chess, but could you just give a few sort of of your books that resonated you the most in the, both the non-chess and the chess sphere? Yep. Um Let's start with non-chess, maybe. So one we talked about uh, is Atomic Habits. Um, you know, just actually listened to the audiobook recently, maybe one year ago. And um, it just helps you for chess, but it helps you for all the things in life, I think. And and just an amazing book by, by James Clear. Um, something we also talked about is actually The Art of Learning, which I really loved from Josh Waitzkin. Um, you know, that process of getting just one song and you're just fully ready for for game day and for him it's like he can get severely injured in all those martial arts like it's not like chess and you make a wrong move and you go home or maybe you go make a wrong move and you have a broken arm well you still go home but there's some pain involved yeah um so that was very very inspiring to me and then um one thing again quality not quantity is um essentialism by greg McKeown, um which is really talking about you know one thing he says is less but better so you should do less things you know less study but but a better quality and was really something that you know ha- hit the home run for me in the way of thinking about quality and um that's that's a book i would definitely you know encourage everybody to pick up um i mean i could go forever but i think i don't want to you know just float yeah your, greg McEwen is when i hadn't read that in going again and going through your blog i'm like all right i gotta move that to the top of the pile um uh-huh. what about uh what about chess books noel so chess book i have here on my table one that i enjoyed a lot which is learn from the legends um from mihail marin I really liked, you know, the condensed version of that's one great player and that's what he did and some games. And um, I really, really liked that because I was never really studying too much classical games. I mentioned that I did some Kasparov books, but just a lot of lines, you know, a lot of things to go through. And 
and that book is really re easy to read in my opinion so that's a big recommendation um then uh all the Gelfand books recently um are you know just very interesting although probably only for slightly higher rated players uh, yeah I don't pretty know advanced if, amazing yeah. but pretty advanced yeah. exactly so if I always feel like if it's tough for me, I gotta gotta <laughs> be careful, you know. <laughs> I yeah. can't just say everybody um, that that you should read that. And um, maybe I can get one for everybody. Like as one um, book series that I really enjoyed that is for everybody, I think, is Judith Bolger's uh, three book series. Yeah, which Fantastic. is so you know so interesting how. She started out with all that chess learning when there was no computers and what she still remembers of those yeah. training games. And I mean, it's just fascinating. And and that's, you know, such books, if I read them, I'm like, you know, I'm nowhere close to their abilities. Like just, it's just so far away. But I still believe I could have competed probably at a similar level, you know, with really going with hard work and doing that for a long time, but it can be intimidating. If you hear the people, you know, have that memory and that have that, you know, tactical abilities, and I'm like, holy cow! Like, how how should yeah, I she, do that? It's just incredible. She just remembers everything. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's absolutely. I had that feeling only once when I was analyzing some game with Ferruja after the Grenke Open. I think it was 2019. There were still some games going on, and. I talked with Ali Reza and another Grandmaster, and we've, you know, just talked about some ongoing Grandmaster games um, in the top tournament. And he was just like 700 times faster with everything. I felt, <laughs> oh, I saw a nice tactical detail. And he's like, yeah, I'm already five moves deeper. And I was like, what <laughs> the heck? How is, How is it even working? And it was the first time I had to actually ask people for a long time, like, what did, which line are you actually calculating? Because I, right. I really wasn't, wasn't there with them. And I just didn't know that feeling. But yeah, some people, it's just, it's just really amazing to see what they, they're able to do. So do you think Ali Reza can be world champion someday? I think that's such a hard question. Yeah, I think, I mean, tactically, he is just out of the world, in my opinion. But, you know, uh, positional understanding, I think Carlsen at his age was further ahead. So I would say for a world championship match, that's probably tough. That would be Michael. Everybody will laugh in my face if if he will be world champion, which obviously there is quite a good possibility. I don't say that there's no possibility. but. Um, I wouldn't see him beat Magnus in two or four years. Let's put it like Okay. And what about Nepo and Magnus? I've been been asking everyone. I can't can't let you off the hook. I I think Magnus is clear favorite, but um mm -hmm. uh, that might be my my perception of things. I I think Nepo can be very dangerous, but especially if Magnus manages to hold himself the first few games, Jan has the, you know, maybe he gets a bit too impulsive or he gets a bit bored with, you know, all those draws or whatever, and he wants some action and that can backfire fast. So I, I would pick Magnus, but I'd probably not give him more than 65%, some, somewhere around there. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, that seems to be the consensus other than Kramnik. And yeah, one thing, I mean, Magnus, he's done a few interviews recently. He seems quite confident and relaxed, which... Uh, uh, which is interesting, probably, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, but I can't can't wait for it. Um, and one rapid fire question, your favorite uh, competitive chess moment. What's your, what's your greatest memory from your OTB career? Um, as... As a tournament, it was the World Rapid and Blitz 2019, even if I didn't play well. And for myself, it was 2014 when I was fifth in the World uh, Under-18 Championship and I played on the first board uh, the last game. It was basically the moment where I started to realize that I can compete internationally. Who did you play? I played against Bortnik. And okay. I actually lost in two hours. I declined the draw, which would have given me third place. But I wanted to win, and I lost in two hours. I just he completely crushed me. <laughs> okay, and I uh, I played through your win against Hari Krishna with with Black a couple years back. That was that was pretty nice. Yeah, as a single game, that's obviously what stands out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, amazing. And and Noel, so again, retired at twenty four, although probably not a. Uh, not still working hard at, at what you're working at, but but what's your what's your daily life like? I feel like we we it's clear you're reading a lot, you're writing a lot, but what else are you into, Noah? Um, I'm actually getting into poker as of the you know the my last holidays. I think it's very stereotypical, but um, <laughs> I find the rather than the mathematical side, which I find you know quite exhausting and boring, I like the psychological side of it. Um, you know, the sometimes even the trash talk at the table or that, you know, what could he think that I have? Um, so that's yeah, something... You mentioned watching uh, Negreanu's Masterclass. Exactly. I, I went, I was watching it and actually I felt like, you know, these chess starters that get into chess and I think, okay, I can play a bit, you know, it won't be that hard. And then they start to learn about it. They're like, holy cow, that's so big. Like yeah. I'm so bad, yeah. And with poker, I felt had exactly the same feeling. So it was like, okay, it can't be that hard, you know. Either you call, raise, or fold. Like, and there is like, you know, raise sizes, defining ranges, and all these things. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. Like, how he thinks about all these things, amazing. So that's something I want to get into it. I'm um, into animals, so I hope next year we'll get a dog. That's awesome. uh, that's one of the plans. Um, would love to get a golden retriever. Um, Have you seen uh, Agard's golden retriever? We got the yes. hard hitting question ah. for you now. <laughs> yeah, Kalia is always posting and sending me pictures. You know, I'm just that was the moment I was like, come on, yeah, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> I follow it on Instagram. So yeah, I I, I follow it on face, Facebook, and I just, yeah. you know, just basically every day some ammunition of dog love, which is yeah. nice. But, um and do you I know your girlfriend is a strong chess player. Do you guys live together? Yes, um we are living together here close to Bern. Uh she is actually from Italy, but she moved here um a bit over a year ago and obviously um spending a lot of time with her. We have in 11 days we have our 5 year anniversary. So oh, congratulations. Thank you. We we are working on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're you're married a bit longer, but you know, it's uh, for a start it's good and we enjoy yeah, the time together. And your um, wedding anniversary in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's that's also impressive. Right? Congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um yeah, that's 
I mean, not too spectacular, I'd say. Uh, whenever I can read and listen to some things and, and write, it's uh, usually pretty happy with my day. Sounds good to me. Well, Noel, this has been amazing. Um, thank you for, for all of the insights. The, the website is nextlevelchess.com. You're on Twitter. Anywhere else on the socials, people should check for you. Um, and no, don't go to Instagram and Facebook. I never post there. So, so just follow me on Twitter. And um, actually, it's nextlevelchess.blog. I just oh, sorry. that. Okay. Exactly. But you will f probably find it if you Google it. But um, yeah. Dot yeah. Blog and of is... course, I'll link to it also so that there can be no screw ups. Um, yep. So if, you, if, uh, if listeners want to find it, just click through. Um, couldn't, couldn't recommend it more highly. Thank um, you so much. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Noel. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, look forward to, to your continued uh, great content. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for having me. Thank you to everyone who listens to and supports the podcast. And most of all, thank you to my producer, Matthew Passy. Be sure to check us out on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Beneficial1. We also have a Perpetual Chess Facebook group where we continue the conversation about each episode. I've even got the Instagram page locked and loaded, actually posting clips every week. So you can follow at Perpetual Chess to catch some clips there. Um, I also want to thank our sponsors, of course, uh, Chessable.com, the original sponsor of Perpetual Chess, Aim Chess, Chess Mood. Thanks. I'm proud to be affiliated with all of these sites. Um, also want to thank Blue Wire Podcast, with whom I partner. Big shout out to Blue Wire. Check them out for sports podcasts. But most of all, I want to thank the individuals who helped make Perpetual Chess go via PayPal or Patreon. And of course, they get to find out the guests, send in questions, hear uh, occasional GM lectures on Zoom, um, and even get ad-free podcasts. So thank you all for supporting Perpetual Chess and keeping it going. So without further ado, I would like to give special thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, David Lazarus of LazmanChess.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Abysmal Depths of Chess blog, shout out to JB, Adapta Interactive Web Designs and Services, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Aniti Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Charlotte Chess Center, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson, I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Thawar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Campus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nilsson, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King's Cell, King's Crusher YouTube channel, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerdnace Twitch channel, Peter McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Soddy, Philip Lummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stefan Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of strongchess.com, Todd Kennedy, 
the Vintage Patters, which is a chess.com improver group, and Wayne Bean. I would also like to give thanks to East Viega, Adam Fowler, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadai, sorry, Ken, Ken Kabadai, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens of Rose City Chess in Portland, Oregon, Chess for Charity in Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Chris, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Caros, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskotschek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM, Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Melo Perilla, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letarte Lavoie, uh, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zanani, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, uh, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shute, Harish Srinivasan, Howard V. Han, uh, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Perry, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Willem, Jay Tuttle, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jesse Damas, Dekumus, excuse me, Jesse, Jesse McNulty, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Th- Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almagor, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfeller, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fredell, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky of Chess Dojo, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Ryforth, Macaulay Peterson, Maria MLU. Emil Yanova, a.k.a. Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Bulatovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matt Ferrari, Matthew Allen Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, the Mechanics Institute of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Negmat Milijanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, Pablo Davida, Grandmaster Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management uh, Limited of Switzerland, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Sampson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malugu, The Say Chess Publishing, Unstoppable Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwalder, Sergey McCagan, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller, and Tom George, uh, WGM Tatiav Abrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, 
FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edzo, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. So thanks for listening, everyone. We will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.